Earlier this month, a number of state governments issued ordinances aimed ostensibly at reforming labor capital relationships in the states in the hope that this would encourage greater investment and create more favorable conditions for industry to restart the economy. These reforms have come under significant scrutiny and some steps have been taken to address the more draconian elements of the reforms. However, the actions of this last month have put a much more clear spotlight on the big questions that need to be discussed about the reframing or perhaps even the framing of labor capital relations and the nature of state mediation. Hello and welcome. I'm Yamini Ayer and you're listening to Thought Space by the Center for Policy Research. This is our 11th episode on the unfolding coronavirus pandemic in India. Today, we look at labor reforms and how the crisis has further skewed the dynamics of labor capital relations in India. To discuss these issues, I have with me today Dr. K.R. Sham Sundar, one of India's leading researchers on labor laws and professor at the Xavier Institute of Management, Jamshedpur. It's a real privilege for us to have you here with us, Dr. Sundar. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Let me start by asking you to uh, give us the big picture. Uh, there is a very well-established almost uh, perception uh, that one of the most critical factors that have constrained growth in India post-reform, post-1991, uh, and that have caused significant disincentives for manufacturing and industry to flourish is India's uh, labyrinthine labor laws. Um, but your work uh, has looked at this very, very closely and I think asked some very important questions about this myth uh, and, and uh, try to shed some light on what labor laws actually do. So for our listener, could you give us a sense of both uh, what is the landscape of labor law regulation in India today? And to what extent uh, is this landscape uh, a serious constraint to capital uh, as well as uh, overprotecting labor? Um, well, the issue of uh, labor regulation, I would say, assumed uh, more intensity and relevance in the post-reform period uh, because uh, being a student of labor history, employers have always protested uh, any labor laws that were introduced from time to time. In fact, the first Factories Act in India came in 1881, not because of the benevolence of the British uh, imperial power, but because of the pressure exerted by the uh, cotton mill owners in, Lan in Lancashire, mm -hmm. saying that India is a land which has a few European uh, uh, cotton textile mills wherein no labor standards obtain, whereas in Lancashire, the labor standards are pretty stiff uh, in, in, the, in such temporal and spatial context. And it uh, prevailed on the British uh, government uh, to uh, send a commission called a factory commission and uh, investigate the condi conditions of work uh, uh, that were prevalent in the factories that existed then 
and on the recommendation of this commission the first practice act was enacted in 1881 which underwent periodical uh, amendments um, as recently as 1934 prior to the independence uh, the practice act stood uh, saying that the hours of work will be 12 hours in some cases 14 and uh, uh, all it also uh, the government british government also obtained a special permission from the international labor organization because the international labor organization as soon as it was formed the first uh, ilo convention it uh, adopted was uh, on the hours of work 001 in 1919 which the british indian government uh, um, uh, ratified and it provided it, it provided for 8 uh, hours of uh, work in a day and 48 hours of work in a week which has been had been by then the um, uh, the demand of the global labor movement particularly the hay market uh, uh, happenings and the may day that we are celebrating mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in 1943 dr b r ambedkar took note of this ilo convention and other factors uh, other uh, Uh, laws that are in existence in other countries and he led the way for the 8 hours of work in a day and 48 hours of work in a week and then the factory act after independence was amended to in to uh, pro- extend this uh, historical right to the workers but in the late from the uh, as soon as we got independence uh, whatever the laws and uh, ILO and various other uh, treaties that we had ratified uh, were uh, endorsed by the independent india for uh, for the sake of the records and then uh, 19 late 1940s uh, early 19 i mean the, the entire 1950s and early 1960s witnessed uh, a, a deluge of um, uh, labor regulations uh, uh, and the capitalist class at that time uh, raised concerns in the tripartite uh, discussions that they ensued in the indian labor conference saying that uh, the the uh, social security and other uh, requirements and factory act would impose a heavy cost so even during the com- command economy the question of labor cost was there but the state intervention model prevailed both in the industrial sector as well as in the labor market and then of course the capital's uh, voice was uh, um let let's say was uh, not taken so seriously but then of course the uh, government listened to it in uh, in several ways and accommodated uh, uh, pro i mean pro capital stance um, in several ways to ash- to tell the uh, tell the employers look we are giving certain rights and social protections uh, uh, to the workers so that you have a disciplined workforce as a result ma- maximization of production will take place and it will lead to industrial peace thereby industrial growth which were the larger uh, commitments of the economic planning during the command economy and um, and of course uh, during the 1960s when the strikes and various forms of labor militancy uh, uh, increased the capital class uh, um, prevailed upon the pri- president and the prime minister to introduce a moratorium on strikes all all these i i labor upon to convey the point that the employers have always regarded uh, state intervention in general and the labor rights in particular through which have been extended uh, uh, via uh, labor laws and uh, various other collective uh, collective uh, mobilizations that exist even during the command economy but 
given the socialistic objectives and the kind and the state, state intervention model that was followed uh, sort of uh, neutralized these um, but still we had the essential service maintenance ordinances to be promulgated from time to time and the debate on the labor regulation began um, since the mid 80s by world bank economist uh, ev lucas who argued that the employment security legislation that is chapter 5b in the industrial disputes act and the, the trade union power uh, together combined and uh, because of which the real wages uh, increased uh, considerably leading to jobless growth in the 1980s which was followed by the Fallon and Lucas work in 1991 which expanded the same re labor regulation argument and then we have the labor rigidity argument uh, uh, set in course to be taken up in the during the post reform period mm -hmm. for the sake of record i will briefly mention that uh, these arguments have been uh, contested and proved to be incorrect by certain scholars like uh, professor late professor ts papola uh, professor lalit deshpande and uh, professor uh, 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 a Nagraj of the IGIDR. Mm -hmm. Now, let us looking at the landscape of uh, um, uh, labor legislation. Since labor is on the concurrent list in a major sense, though there are some which are listed in the union and the state list, the central and state governments have enacted. And also, I must uh, uh, mention here in passing, because uh, lest I may forget, there is a huge talk about uh, numerous labor laws, 44, 40, so many counts have been given. Mm. But in effect, uh, if you take, I mean, if, as a business school, uh, as, a, as, as we teach labor law, we do not teach labor laws uh, which are more than, let us say, uh, 12 or 13 of the 40, so 40 or 44 uh, odd labor laws. I mean, maximum we teach 15. So these are the labor laws uh, um, our uh, students who are potential HR and IR managers will be employing uh, in the formal sector, whether they be in uh, organized manufacturing sector or organized service sector. The remainder of the labor laws concerned with the labor welfare funds. So that this is a real myth that, are be, that has been created by the pro-flexibility um, uh, school. And of course, uh, uh, the labor laws are archaic. That is the second kind of criticism that has been made. But uh, we have several ar uh, archaic laws, including the civil conduct rules, which are colonial in origin, but which are continued, save uh, 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 a very rare cases of uh, amendment by, say, like uh, the one that has been made, made by the West Bengal government. Mm -hmm. We also have uh, the Defense of India rules, which were brought in during the Second World War, still on the statute book. I can go on and on, but the point is that uh, just because a law is uh, uh, enacted uh, 60, 70 years ago, it doesn't become get the pejorative term of uh, uh, term of being archaic and thereby irrelevant. Yes, in a in a sense that the laws that have been designed for the command economy may not be all relevant for the uh, mar market economy, but that, that is a that is to 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 that extent one can go about. Mm -hmm. So we have the labor laws, which uh, largely can be divided into four categories. Uh, one dealing with the uh, conditions of work and uh, uh, generic registrations like the Factories Act, Shops and Establishment Act, and so on and so forth. And then we have the laws concerning the wages, uh, which are Minimum Wages Act, Payment of Wages Act, Payment of Bonus Act, and Equal Remuneration Act. And then we have the laws concerning the Industrial Relations, that is the Industrial Disputes Act, 1947, Industrial Employment Standing Orders Act 1946, and the Trade Unions Act 1926. 
and then we have a whole lot of laws concerning the social security like a provident fund act gratuity act maternity benefit act and the health insurance act esi act apart from that we have the labor welfare fund laws which are there and of doesn't uh, belong to the labor regulation debate realm so this is the kind of a mapping and uh, and the there are two primary sources of uh, law making in any country particularly in a pluralistic democratic uh, socialistic state still as we call ourselves is <laughs> or that one is a constitution of our country and secondly the international treaties that we are signatory to to or bound otherwise uh, um, um, uh, as imposed by the uh, as flowing from the our uh, our being a member of uh, the organizations and thereby subscribe to the constitution of that organization the most important treaties that are relevant to the world of work in, that is industrial relations system and the labor market are the ilo conventions uh, uh, we have 191 conventions and more, two, more than 200 recommendations and few pro protocols ilo conventions are subject to, to ratification by the member country it is optional but but once it is ratified it becomes uh, mandatory on the part of the ratifying country to uh, have labor laws and regulations policies in place that reflect the clauses of the convention of course ilo has flexibility in terms of uh, full scale applicability and uh, this is the broad framework and recommendations of course like our directive principles of state policy or guidelines in fact our constitution and ilo resonate together in the sense that we have the fundamental rights which are justiciable and we have the directive principles of state policy which are aspirations of the society in which act as guidelines which are as powerful as the fundamental rights as they provide valuable guide uh, goal posts and guidelines for the constitution and the labor administrators to uh, keep them in mind while deciding on the uh, industrial disputes in the same manner the ilo conventions are like our fundamental rights they are subject to the ratification they become binding and uh, enforceable as well as, uh, as our directive principles of state policy ilo recommendations are guidelines nonetheless uh, very important and as powerful as the conventions are so this is the uh, kind of a, a overview i can give but coming to the the rough points uh, or the points of irritation uh, i mean i could say that i mean their uh, employers are up against almost all the labor laws but in particular they are very vexed with the factories act uh, because it was uh, drafted in 1948 during which time the concept of enlightened enlightened employers was not exactly prevalent and the public sector was the dominant employer uh, occupying the commanding heights of the economy so there are provisions in that which uh, for example keep a spittoon or uh, whitewash your floor your walls etc um, they i mean th those things which an enlightened employer is more likely to do but in general they were uh, they were not happy with the fact they are not very happy with the factory sacks they are not happy with the minimum wages act it does not be sung in the fact that minimum wages have not been revised uh, once in 5 years uh, at least in once in 5 years as it is required to be but still they found that minimum wages violate the Uh, market economy concept of market wages and uh, and minimum wages are revised far too often and impose a considerable burden on the industries including the large industries uh, occupied uh, sectors like plantation and textiles not to mention the um, msmes uh, 
uh, which acronym I'll be using, assuming that all the readers, all the listeners will be knowing. And then, of course, the Industrial Employment Standing Order Act, because uh, it provides for domestic inquiry uh, before uh, uh, before taking disciplinary action against an employer who has allegedly committed a misconduct. And then comes the very important act, the Industrial Disputes Act, which is seen to be the major source of rigidity as uh, there are a number of provisions. I will deal with them uh, uh, very shortly now and we'll, you can take it up later. Section, nine, uh, section 9A requires uh, um, uh, the employers to uh, notify the uh, change in the conditions of employment uh, um, which will include uh, change in technology and all kinds of uh, innovations or reorganization of production, which may cause, among others, unemployment or changes in employment or composition of employment. And employers say this, this imposes considerable rigidities on the employers because the moment the notice of change is uh, issued to the trade unions or the workers concerned, they uh, enter into negotiation and there is an industrial dispute and it goes to the conciliation missionary and so on and so forth. And then the entire uh, change is not uh, trans could, could not be translated in action or one has to wait for the award award by the labor coach and then we have the uh, section 11a which which says the labor judiciary has the power to review the disciplinary action taken by the employers uh, with respect to the domestic inquiry if the orders are malified or uh, are arbitrary or do not take into account the principles of natural justice etc the most important irritant has been the chapter 5b which was introduced during the internal emergency which origin is considered to be unholy by the employers because internal emergency is a considerable i mean i mean most fundamental violation of democracy but this a couple of good things came despite emergency one was the introduction of workers participation management in the directive principles of state policy and then of course bringing in chapter 5b which at the time applied to registered factories registered mines and registered plantations employing 300 or more workers and which was amended by the same indira gandhi government in 1982 to make it applicable to establishments employing 100 or more workers which came into effect for inexplicable reasons in 1984 I mean, I must also make it very clear that lots of people, including my students, uh, miss the fact that this Chapter 5B applies to only three sectors. That is registered factories, registered mines, and registered plantations, and thereby leaves out all the other sectors such as construction and the entire service sector and the public utilities. So, uh, and then the industrial establishments employing 100 or more workers need to serve notice to the affected workers and secure prior permission, which is the typical uh, neoclassical argument uh, uh, or neoliberal argument would go is that the government would not give uh, prior permission for fear of political backlash and thereby it amounts to actual rigidity on the working of the employers uh, who are unable to respond to the you know the volatile market forces in a global globalized competitive market economy that we are in mm -hmm. and now of course of late the employers have been complaining about the uh, payroll taxes particularly the esi and uh, and of course the provident fund and that is why we see uh, for the last five years or so constant attempts to tinker with the uh, epf rate and the esi rates have taken place in even during the covid time 
and of course when the maternity maternity benefit act uh, was amended in 2017 to provide extend the maternity benefit from it's about 6 months now um so that 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 has also been seen as uh, uh, i mean um, provide i mean imposing a gender penalty because the employers uh, uh, not uh, would not ideally pro- prefer a female employee for a, for the potential maternity benefit uh, costs uh, and would uh, rather employ a male worker so i think uh, i have given um, a broad brush view which may not have actually justified the the vast landscape of labor laws and alluded to uh, the rigidity arguments uh, here and there yes no thank you very much i think this is we couldn't have asked for a better quick 101 into the vastness of our labor regulation but uh, what we hadn't expected was a wonderful history lesson from uh, the origins of our regulation uh, to where we are today so thank you very very much for that let me pose to you two questions sort of linking to uh, what you were allu- alluding to in your remarks one you said that uh you know amidst this sort of labyrinthine of laws or a large number of laws in fact there are only about 13 of these that are of relevance uh, and those are the 13 that you're teaching uh to your students as well which seems to suggest that uh in some senses we have a lot of uh ineffective underused regulation uh or or uh, uh labor laws that exist not neither to support labor nor to support capital uh but potentially and this is and i'm going to push you a little bit to uh, to try and understand better why uh the the narrative of an, uh, a large number of laws each of which can uh you know cause their own uh, red tape which makes flexibility for employers very difficult is it that the existence of these dead laws so to speak uh can uh create arbitrariness in the system um and uh if so how should we be thinking about uh wading through uh this large number of relatively irrelevant laws uh that exist that would be my first question and then i wanted to follow up uh in the, in the next phase of our discussion on the industrial disputes act and the factories act well um, apart from this main i call them as mainstream labor laws the ones that i mentioned uh, covered briefly though um, i didn't talk about gratuity act bonus act and um, trade unions act uh, um, which also have their irritant uh, points hmm. but the 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 dead weight laws i mean what they could refer is the labor welfare funds laws which in madhya pradesh they have uh, um they also amended the labor welfare fund act during the covid time there are a number of um, uh, labor welfare fund laws that have been created both by the central government and by the state governments uh, uh, say those relating to miners like mica uh, uh, mica mining fund uh, welfare act welfare fund act and the bd and cigarette workers welfare fund act and uh, the plantation act um, the building and other construction workers the bocw act bonded labor regulation uh, abolition act and of course uh, the child and adolescent uh, labor prohibition and regulation act which has received some uh, notice in the recent times uh, though uh, the amendment did not do sufficient justice and of course the building uh, and construction workers cess act mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so these are some of the acts in which uh, there are laws uh, like um, 
the act relating to the children that is children adolescent labor act which has been amended in order uh, in order to have uh, in order to align our labor laws with the ilo conventions uh, c138 and c180 uh, 182 uh, regarding child labor and worst forms of child labor and um, uh, during the process it also introduced uh, certain uh, flexibilities like providing uh, for um, uh, child um, child uh, work not employment in the home based work and uh, various other child artists and other spheres on the ground that uh, i mean talents uh, and skills are hereditary and um, it cannot be destroyed by law whereas in uh, it can it, it is seen as a kind of a disguise opportunity for employment of uh, uh, child uh, labor mm -hmm. because of the penetration of the uh, domestic and global supply chain which goes up to the home based worker which i also discovered during my field studies in pune for a project that i worked for ilo on formalizing informality in the supply chains in the automobile sector in pune um uh, today i think ilo uh, had tweeted that uh, closure of schools should not mean um, employment of uh, um, you know child or uh, children in the labor market and that is an extreme uh, extremely relevant concern uh, because uh, uh, families might see this as an opportunity particularly in the rural areas and semi semi urban areas uh, to ask the children to do various menial tasks and thereby deprive them of uh, and other forms of learning that uh, that could be there uh, but of course one need to address this through by tweaking education policy because uh, millions of poor children will not be able to afford the online uh, education the most uh, uh, irrelevant um, i mean very ill implemented act is this uh, employment exchanges compulsory notification of vacancies uh, act 19 uh, 1959 at the time we uh, the, the planners devised the labor market exchanges uh, uh, in line with the ilo convention um, on the same subject and then they provided they also thought that they would collect the employment market information uh, through this act and it required the uh, all the Publicitor enterprises and private sector enterprises employing 25 or more employees to submit quarterly reports and annual reports from time to time of the vacancies and accessions that is recruitments that take place and the people uh, unemployed people who typically register in the labor uh, uh, labor uh, uh, you know exchange labor uh, employment exchange and then they to do the matching of labor skill market skills and. and thereby the um, um, the labor market could function in an orderly manner but it it proved to be a damp script for various reasons and uh, not all people registered and so on and so forth and uh, code makers uh, uh, in this uh, in the recent times have included this act in the social security code as of course it doesn't uh, um, i mean it doesn't uh, have anything in relation to social security as we understand Um, by ilo conventions or by other training um the but but i must also mention uh, that the there are two labor laws which have uh, been uh, rather three 2 plus 1 rather um which have been which would have done a great good to the most vulnerable sections of the workers 
who are on the fringes of the labor market uh, that is the interstate migrant workers who, who are supposed to be uh, governed by the interstate migrant workman act 1979 and of course the workers who are um, it, it also has the par it also overlaps uh, workers who are employed in the construction workers uh, namely the bocw act and the bocw cess act and of course the bonded labor abolition act they are all connected there is a synthesis between them we should we should read all these laws as a, as a kind of a, uh, you know uh, uh, interconnected uh, um, um, a larger uh, uh, legal framework than seeing them as compartmentalized ones because migrant workers uh, invariably are employed in the construction sector and of course they are employed in hospitality and other sectors but of course the domestic economy um, but and also the migrant workers fall fall the fall into the trap of being bonded uh, labor, and bonded labor is uh, though we have uh, ratified the conventions with respect to bonded labor, uh, the reports show that uh, bonded labor still exists. The I mean let us say the BOCW Act uh, 1996 is an extremely quite good act, and um, it required uh, civil society organizations and. Uh, trade unions of, uh, concerning the informal unorganized workers like National Committee on Labor and also with the Association of Just, uh, Justice Krishna here filed a, uh, a petition after petition in the Supreme Court and from 2009 uh, onwards the Supreme Court has been um, uh, issuing orders to the central government and the state government to implement this act and uh, recently in 2018 the Supreme Court passed an extremely stringent uh, um, um, uh, order uh, wherein it has passed uh, uh, adverse remarks strictures on the on the labor administrative setup uh, that obtains both in the central government and the state governments. And now we see that uh, during the COVID time that uh, the BOCWCS Fund Act, we have a huge amount of unutilized uh, fund. Money, yes. The extent of, uh, I mean, the estimates range from 40,000 to close to 60,000 crores. But let me, let me just stop you there and ask you this. I think one of the questions, uh, you, you know, that has uh, rarely got asked uh, enough or perhaps asked well enough about our current labor regulation is this. Uh, on the one hand, uh, it seems like uh, we have this massive regulation, even, uh, even though a large number of these laws are no longer uh, actually applicable to industry but uh, so it seems and you know just taking from the example of the uh, building workers construction uh, says that uh, in fact the implementation of these laws has been extremely weak uh, but on the other uh, therefore therefore there is an argument that these laws are perhaps not robust enough or are not protecting uh, uh, labor enough. But on the other, there is the argument or the myth of a large number of laws that uh, actually constrain flexibility of employers. So where is the, uh, how does one balance these two very different narratives uh, about the experiences of our labor laws uh, in, in the current context? Yes, and uh, see, there are these. These, in fact, uh, sort of, you know, it's a kind of an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. uh, um, on the one hand, we say this uh, labor laws uh, uh, don't make sense. On the other hand, there are labor laws that make uh, uh, too much bad sense. Yes, so, uh, <laughs> that's a very nice way of describing them, actually. <laughs> so, um, but the but the fact is uh, is that as usual uh, the. 
the 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 truth remains uh, somewhere in the middle right the whole problem is that the labor legislative uh, framework has been so much dominated by the organized sector mm-hmm. um, uh, i mean uh, since the command economy and uh, which gained a lot lot of uh, credence during the i mean since the liberalization uh, since the mid 1980s uh, the the entire forces of liberalization privatization and globalization this discourse has largely revolved around the organized sector and thereby the labor laws which uh, which impinge on on this uh, uh, so called minuscule uh, organized sector have been blown out of proportion because of course the the stock market whose behavior i can't understand as much i could not understand the behavior of my daughter mm-hmm. uh, nor my parents could when i was young mm-hmm. in the sense that it's very erratic and uh, it catches cold uh, at the slightest uh, uh, you know formation of cloud in, uh, in a in a very ironical sense um, the the thing is that uh, the organized sector labor laws uh, um, received uh, disproportionate attention while the really good labor laws which concern the unorganized sector or the precarious workers like the bosvw or interstate migrant workmen or the bd workers or all these laws uh, did not uh, receive uh, support either from the employers and i should say uh, sadly from the trade unions and also of course from the labor administrative so- Uh, but, but but there is an argument that has been made even on uh, some uh, bo- both the billing and construction workers act as well as the interstate migrants work, migrant workmen act that the uh, that part of the challenge was that the demands it placed on the employer were far too onerous for the employer to uh, to meet uh, and that is one of the reasons why disincentives were built in uh, and that further uh, strengthened the informality uh, what is your your response to that uh do when we create laws i think actually they point to a larger question do we need to take into consideration the kind of perverse incentives it may create uh or uh, do we or is our starting point uh the moral good uh and that we build the state capacity to ensure that everybody follows suit yes i think this is the very interesting way to put it uh Uh, see uh, the basically we are, uh, i mean uh, uh, as labor economists we start by saying why do we require law and uh, right the generally we say that uh, we are a civilized lot and i don't know about that but still <laughs> and then um, we are uh, on a path of progress and social economic progress and all those things we typically teach but coming to the um, the 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 brass um, the, the nuts and bolts of the labor market uh, operation mm-hmm. the the important argument that we give is that the the objective of laws is to primarily tackle the labor market opportunistic behavior on the part of employers and employees there is a, a simple game theory which says that there is an inherent incentive on the part of uh, both employers and employees to cheat that is not to observe the law as much as possible um, because um, the employees don't want to be uh, disciplined and um, uh, they want to i mean as, as a prof i would like to have uh, more leisure um, uh, not overwork and ask for more wages and less uh, hours of work etc and the employers have an incentive to pay me 
uh, uh, I mean, not even the minimum wages, if the minimum wages are high and so on and so forth. Why should they provide crush? Crush for that matter. Uh, now the uh, uh, act has been amended, maternity benefit act has been amended to say that, uh, uh, which is a very uh, wide, uh, a very sweeping amendment, uh, which says that any establishment employing uh, 50 or more employees, not even female employees, employees which would require, which would be in male and female and probably, uh, no, though the law has not uh, included LGBT community, which mm -hmm. uh, it will do soon. Uh, so now we have only two genders. Uh, so uh, the, the employer is bound to provide the crash facilities. Uh, so uh, this is seen to be a very, um, I mean, the state has exceeded its brief by asking us to, telling us to do uh, what is the welfare activity and what is not a welfare activity. But the, this is the, what is the argument by the enlightened industry. We will give on our own. Why do we, why should we, we be told? This is the general refrain. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, of course, uh, I, I do uh, understand and see merit in this argument. But basically, the labor laws are there because if, if they are not provided for, the employer is less likely to provide uh, the facilities, those that are beyond um, the, beyond the, let us say, the welfare imagination of the employer. Now, how do we identify who is welfare oriented? Tata Steel is welfare oriented, Mahindra is welfare oriented, mm -hmm. or some uh, Nagri uh, uh, tech garment company is uh, 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 welfare oriented. So we do not, have, we cannot go by the individual uh, exceptional play, uh, cases of uh, uh, benevolent employers. So the law makes a critical assumption that uh, uh, there must be some basic conditions that must be provided and uh, it is let us say like a floor and uh, I mean leave, leave the other things to the employer and the trade unions to sort out in a collective bargaining context mm -hmm. and then um, you know uh, then it would take, take into account the micro uh, firm based uh, context into picture but in, in India what happened we didn't uh, go through this process of uh, labor legislation providing the minimum conditions and then a strong labor movement and a strong employers organizations. So the state had to decide in the 1950s, uh, look, we want to progress fast, faster than we should have, we should. Market economy pop model uh, uh, will not deliver the goods. So we need a planned economy, economy model and for that industrial peace is very important. And industrial peace could be only obtained if there are laws uh, in, in place which will assure uh, certain um, uh, benefits and uh, certain rights as well as liabilities on the workers on the part of the employers. What has been done in the Western econ um, uh, free market economies, free market economy based uh, uh, countries uh, in the Western countries, the law typically provided the minimum conditions and as the economic progress uh, took place over the uh, decades or centuries, both through social dialogue, that is collective bargaining and tripartite uh, consultations, say in Scandinavian countries, uh, um, I mean, the state would uh, amend the laws and uh, or the collective agreements will, will provide what is being, what are, what are being provided by the labor laws in India. So we must, we must keep in mind the fact that the employers and trade unions were marginalized. They were not as evolved and as mature. Uh, 
uh, at the time of independence or even after three or four decades. Uh, this is a typical uh, political economy argument. But, but, but uh, if I can uh, ask you the uh, a, a last question on the history and then we'll come to the current ordinances, which is this. I mean, one of the, uh, e even as you say, uh, our uh, labor bargaining power was not robust enough at the time of framing laws. Uh, over time, uh, there is at least particularly uh, from, from the history of the 70s and 80s of large strikes and difficulties of negotiation with labor unions as unions being a significant constraint. Uh, you know, I would like you to talk a little bit about your work and what other labor economists like Aditya Bhattacharya's work uh, also points out, uh, which is that uh, we have actually seen a decline in strikes um, and sort of activities of labor unions uh, over time, uh, even though wages have stagnated. Uh, so if you could talk to us a little bit about the role of uh, unions, uh, why they have been seen uh, as hurdles to, uh, uh, to flexibility for employers, uh, but also this uh, conundrum of uh, unions uh, not being as strong enough as you would think if wages are stagnating. It was a labor, labor administrative failure uh, to have misutilized the CES fund and not utilized the CES fund. There are two aspects to it. I see. And 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 uh, the boards were not constituted, so it's a typical labor market governance failure, which would have been checked uh, if we had in place a very vibrant and an encompassing trade union movement, which covered the unorganized sector as they should have, which is now building up. I thought I would start with this in order to answer the question with mm -hmm. uh, uh, the with regard to the role of trade unions mm -hmm. the uh, well uh, not to get into the history we are, we know that there are two types of uh, trade unions uh, rather three uh, one is the politically affiliated trade unions which have been our classic uh, uh, type of trade unions which still dominates the uh, union uh, spectrum mm -hmm. and then we have this enterprise based uh, non political party affiliated uh, trade unions it could be independent at the factory level or it, it could also be affiliated to a non-political federation such as NTUI, National Trade Union Initiative. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have, of course, uh, Maverick-led uh, trade unions. And now, of course, we have this uh, new forms of labor organizations that have arisen uh, who, do not, uh, who may not register under the Trade Unions Act, but they, 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 would, they, they are registered under the Societies Registration Act, not under the Cooperative Society, Societies Registration Act 1886, and then, of course, the Charitable Trust Act. So we have, for example, CIVIDEP, we have SAVE, and we have, um, of course, uh, Ajivika is also a trade union, and the SEVA is also a trade union. Now, what has happened is that the, post, this, uh, the whole argument about the um, labor unions being a hindrance has uh, two uh, strands. I will briefly touch the uh, command economy strand to say that uh, uh, political unionism led to multiplicity and in inter and intra-union rivalry, thereby destroyed not only the workers' cause, but the employers' economic efficiency, and it did a disservice to both. And uh, uh, capitalizing on this, the enterprise unions came up and the maverick unions like Dr. Tata Samant, who, who, uh, who in fact launched the 81-82 textile strike, which is, uh, as per the formal records, it is not terminated as yet. 
the dispute is on mm -hmm. that may surprise many of your listeners and uh, uh, and uh, uh, dr dada samant had uh, uh, his first enemy was not the state uh, in a larger sense but it were the they were the, the politically affiliated unions like including the left unions which uh, chided him and accused him and uh, did a lot of uh, damage and of course uh, that is that is the kind of a uh, right so this brings me to the point that during the command economy the trade unions whatever may be their uh, uh, character and dimension they were battling for already i mean spaces of dominance in the already unionized spaces mm -hmm. this is very important to understand and it set in motion a kind of a competition which degenerated into rivalry and thereby involution and the, and then of course the, the argument was that uh, the state uh, i mean occupied the commanding heights the public sector like you take railways banking insurance uh, the financial sector the government employment the teaching education sector uh, all mining sector all these sectors uh, telecom sector all these sectors uh, public enterprises all the 236 or public enterprises had the number of trade unions because of the largesse of employment that are doled out by that uh, uh, by the mlas and mps uh, to appease uh, and please their uh, constituencies and thereby we had this bloated employment concept which led to the legitimacy of the privatization in the post reform period mm -hmm. and uh, so we have an argument that it uh, that trade unions as they existed in the command economy did service this disservice both to employers and the working class cause and then that led to the argument by the world bank to say that the trade unions have been having a disproportionate labor market power to be able to appropriate a, a real uh, a spectacular real wage growth which is higher than the per capita in real per capita income growth and thereby the the i mean it's a typical neoclassical theory wherein uh, higher the real wages lower the employee demand for labor mm -hmm. so we had a jobless growth in the 1980s and then it is supposed to continue unless these unions are checked uh, i mean historically employers have always asked for uh, curbing of trade union rights and i also mentioned about uh, imposing moratorium on strikes right so that uh, continued in the post reform period as well and uh, when we took the low conditionalities based loan uh, the 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 brief to the government was to deregulate the, not only the labor market and also to discipline the industrial relations system in order to uh, in order to regulate the union trade unions uh, uh, behavior and collective bargaining was also considered to be an inefficient uh, uh, institution according to economic theory because it standardizes the wage compensation and other uh, non wage compensation aspects irrespective of the individuals that is marginal productivity that is the uh, uh, that is the individual's contribution to the enterprise and the collective bargaining also has been responsible to introduce the dearness allowance as a part of the compensation uh, wage package and dearness allowance uh, increases and thereby the gross wages increases which has got nothing to do with what happens on the shop floor i may be producing uh, say same 100 ball pens per hour but because the consumer price in in the index rises and uh, inflation adjusted uh, uh, dns allowance also rises every 6 months or or so 
uh, and of course there is a lot of intricacies which I will not go into. So the typical employer's argument is that the trade unions and collective bargaining together have introduced very large substantial components of the compensation, namely dearness allowance and uh, basic fixed basic wages uh, with increments and of course the uh, bonus uh, which has been made into an entitlement as the 13th deferred wages, that the so-called 13 month wa months uh, wages, irrespective of the fact the fact the firm the firms covered by the bonus act makes profit or not, the minimum bonus of 8.33 ought to have ought to be paid. The deregulation argument typically asks for curbing of trade union rights, which is freedom of association, and the very very uh, Libertarian theory uh, will neo libertarian theory will ask for individual bargaining in place of collective yeah. bargaining. Yeah. But a more more nuanced uh, view, uh, which the World Bank took in the two thousand one thereabouts, uh, will argue for decentralized bargaining at the profit center level or a plant level, in as opposed to the centralized bargaining, um, uh, which happens at the industry more aggregate level as the later is uh, give, enhances the bargaining power of the workers and trade unions, whereas uh, the decentralized bargaining would be able, the employers, uh, the negotiators would be able to factor in the factors, uh, I mean, the variables which are relevant to the organization and the product market and the labor market and the skills available. So this in short is the, uh, is the neoclassical perception on the role of uh, labor uh, from counter, this uh, yeah. uh, period uh, to uh, th 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 there was a general mm -hmm. sense of stagnation in form of notion that excessive labor supply in labor heavy country like India allowed for a fair amount of circumvention of uh, labor uh, and uh, created a permanent market for the employer, which uh, sort of strengthened the informality and in fact strengthened the role of the mediator and the contractor uh, far more uh, than uh, the labor regulation uh, system was able to, to resolve. And that too is often offered as one of the reasons why we need to be going, uh, we need to be thinking a lot harder about uh, labor reforms. Uh, but I'm going to bridge that to, to a question with where we are today. And I did want you uh, to reflect a little bit for our listeners on how you interpret this uh, evolution of the debate around labor law and uh, the, the perspectives that came into the mainstream uh, around the 1991 reforms uh, and onward to the current rush of uh, reforms uh, that are now being pursued uh, across uh, India's state governments. What's your take on uh, the urgency behind the way in which states have responded and whether or not any of these are going to resolve uh, these historical tensions that you have so uh, uh, effectively described for us between labor regulation uh, and, uh, and industry? Uh, see, the typical uh, um, uh, neoliberal or neoclassical argument uh, is that uh, the, the, tra the trade unions have effectively created a labor aristocracy, the interests of the insiders, and do not allow the uh, outsiders who are uh, sitting or standing or queuing up at the margin to enter the labor market, lest the bargaining power that is enjoyed by the insiders 
uh, and the trade unions thereby could be weakened. So the trade unions are supposed to have typically created a kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, similar to tariff wall, a kind of an institutional entry wall, uh, which uh, kept effectively the, the non-standard or non-regular workers outside this uh, uh, labor legislative and collective bargaining framework. Mm -hmm. Thereby, a, a, a labor market duality uh, in terms of uh, 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 the standard workers and the non-standard workers or the formal organized workers and the unorganized workers was supposed to have been created by the trade unions on the one hand and by the labor legislations with their various sets of thresholds on the other hand. These thresholds are actually the points for uh, points of uh, practical implementation for the labor administrative setup and but of course it excluded more rather than including so these two institutions are seen to have uh, created an artificial divide in the labor market um, and uh, uh, to a certain extent uh, this argument uh, is true because uh, that the central trade unions uh, 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 are the mainstream trade unions that would be the better way to put uh, put this would be was uh, did engage with uh, with the primary constituency that is the regular and permanent workers but to be fair to them they did not uh, ignore uh, the non-standard workers or unorganized workers who are outside the purview of the labor legislation because of the simple functional logic that uh, for, for trade unions to uh, uh, widen their coverage, they require uh, a very critical support from, uh, by the labor laws, because the moment the trade unions try to organize, let us say contract workers, casual workers, or any kind of uh, non-standard worker, the typical response by the employers would be to uh, dismiss them from job. The, the the informal workers so the question the 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 catch 22 situation is that the unions trade unions wish to uh, extend the coverage of their unions to informal sector workers uh, informal workers in both in the uh, organized sector as well as in the unorganized sector but the labor market realities the absence of labor regulations do not uh, enable them to do so Notwithstanding this, there have been some pragmatic ways by which uh, trade unions have sought to organize uh, contract casual and uh, agricultural and other, other workers. And I have done a few projects for the International Labor Organization, wherein uh, the major work was in 2011. Uh, it was a pro uh, project on the contract workers, the non-standard workers, the primary form of non-standard workers in the formal sector. I found uh, uh, through my research, uh, empirical research and study of collective agreements that uh, wherever uh, trade union rights are assured by law, wherever the labor laws provide a modicum of protection to this uh, precarious uh, non-standard workers, and wherever uh, uh, trade unions could uh, organize and uh, have collective bargaining, which is a form of uh, social dialogue, the terms and conditions of employment concerning the contract and casual workers were much better than those who were deprived of all these 
institutional protections that uh, that existed for these kind of workers. Right. So I I arrived at a conclusion saying that if these uh, labor market conditions, enabling labor market conditions, are uh, extended to these workers, then the labor market the the uh, will become more formalized. And that conclusion was generally the line that the, uh, the International Labour Organization has also okay. taken. Now, the neoliberal and neoclassical argument has been uh, backed by the um, uh, global financial institutions like the World Bank through its ease of doing business surveys and various global organizations like IMD and others who do uh, competitiveness of uh, firms survey and all those things. They typically drive home the point to the countries which are competing for global capital and technology in the globalized uh, uh, trade liberalized world saying that uh, if you uh, if you uh, if you want uh, capital and technology to enter uh, a country uh, there must be labor flexibility labor flexibilities uh, in essence means that uh, the employers must have all kinds of enjoy all kinds of uh, product market and labor market uh, uh, powers to respond to the ever-changing market forces which includes technology and com communications and thereby the competitive competitiveness of the firms uh, uh, and also the competitiveness of the economy as a whole gets enhanced mm -hmm. and uh, the chances of uh, attracting for more foreign direct investment will be considerably higher right. and the typical examples that we that will be quoted would be the east asian uh, economies right uh, and and then it acquired a larger sense of legitimacy because of the kind of pro flexibility studies that were done starting with Wesley and burgess in 2004 yes. which were which were uh, copied and um, improved upon uh, but the Wesley and burgess indices uh, because of its inherent structural position to provide pro flexibility conclusions that in that that the work became very popular and uh, the all the studies that emanated from uh, this lexymetric uh, methodology gave a uh, consistently typical conclusion that uh, labor laws in india of course the uh, bestian budgets and others uh, i mean initially con considered only the Industrial Dispute Act, whereas there are equally other powerful laws, but some um, World Bank economists try to uh, include, uh, let us say, Contract Labor Act, but it was it was not. Uh, they uh, still they suffered from considerable uh, conceptual, methodological, and econometric uh, shortcomings, which were exposed by uh, three uh, um, very uh, principal academics. And then people started also talking about uh, 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 the difference between de jure and de facto uh, aspects of laws. Laws may read tougher uh, on paper, which was the argument that I took, calling them as paper tigers. And then laws that are actually implemented, there's a, there's a huge gap. And in fact, in India, very important labor market uh, um, managerial strategy took place, which people like Pranab Bardhan and Jenkins, uh, Bob Jenkins and others, and of course, uh, Professor, late Professor Venkatatram and I called the, them as reforms on the slide. That is, uh, you allow the employers to do um, either bypass the labor laws or to do uh, any form of uh, labor market practices. 
and the labor administration typically turns the other way uh, turns the nelson eye to say to say so and thereby the employers uh, are given the opportunity to achieve labor flexibility and then of course the inspector raj uh, argument and others were cracked by some of us so the sum and substance of all these things is that uh, and of course a very important work has been done by ilo wherein they proved like david kusera and others uh, argued that um, uh, good capital chases uh, high labor standards uh, as opposed to the neoclassical uh, theory that uh, as water would flow from a uh, higher terrain to a lower terrain higher terrain meaning the higher labor standards tougher labor standards and lower terrain meaning lower labor standards or cheaper labor standards this is a neoclassical theory capital would would flow from higher labor standards uh, uh, regions to lower labor standard regions so you must liberalize labor laws but kusera uh, and others argued saying that a uh, uh, good capital will always chase higher labor standards so uh, and also the supply chain uh, 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 you know ethics came into picture and sustainable development and sustainable enterprise and fair globalization and decent work all these paradigms came into picture and the, now the labor market labor regulation debate is not just about the rigidities as was very narrowly argued by uh, neoclassical theory in which even people like uh, uh, robert solo picked a lot of poles it's now all about the labor market governance sustainable development sustainable enterprise uh, human rights uh, uh, and it's not only about labor rights because uh, uh, the globalization is such that for example bopal gas tragedy or the vaisa gas tragedy shows that it could be a uh, social disaster it just need not be a, uh, a worker workplace related accident so the point that is coming out very clearly is that uh, the the neoliberals and neoliberals neoclassical theories argument that labor regulations are a problem and they constrain industrial growth and thereby affecting employment generation and eventually even poverty alleviation as basically and burgess argued they are ill founded and uh, and and then people like richard freeman and others argued that that labor institutions perform very vital uh, social functions and also productivity raising functions uh, in other words for example it is this argument is very simple if workers had the voice uh, to protest against uh, uh, any uh, deficiencies in the uh, in the enterprise there are two options that will be three options that will be left to them either they keep quiet which is silence uh, and uh, and uh, withdrawal uh, the other option is to exit which means uh, resigning from the firm and the third option is the, the voice option so the voice option will mean that the there will be the trade unions there will be grievance redressal mechanisms and that and the uh, uh, deficiencies could be brought into a constructive discussion that is social dialogue as ilo calls them and then the the conditions could be cured and thereby the workers would not leave the firm so that the labor turnover costs of the employers would de decrease and the human capital investment would increase and thereby the productivity of the labor productivity will rise so it also leads to the argument the concomitant argument that rise in wages need not necessarily mean uh, rise in the labor cost because increased wages 
would motivate the workers and also uh, increase their uh, efficiency thereby productivity will increase so the unit labor cost will remain the same so in in fact labor uh, this collective bargaining labor laws all those are not rigidities this has been a really really wonderful overview of both of the literature as well as the limits to uh, the frameworks that we have developed to understand these laws let me just ask you one last question as we come to a close uh, on this discussion i think what uh, what uh, you have sort of brought the place you have brought us to is really to open our eyes into asking questions about uh, current well established assumptions of the limits of labor law uh, in uh, building uh, growth and building uh, our economy uh, and and also uh, the importance of really building new frameworks uh, within which to think about uh, the regulation of labor capital relations and that's really uh, the last question i want to pose to you we've uh, i uh, i think we've been stuck in india in debates uh, that were perhaps relevant uh, for for that time uh in the first phase of 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 our uh, opening up of the economy and are moving away from command and control socialist economies to a more market friendly one uh but there has been a lot of water that has flowed under the bridge and the one thing that we do know now uh from uh the uh visibility of the 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 inhospitable conditions in which labor uh has existed in our cities is that regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the current like regulatory architecture for uh Uh, state mediation of labor capital relations uh, the the architecture itself is simply not effective in protecting rights of workers so going forward uh, what are the two things you would like us to think about in order to reframe the the debate the objective here is really not to get stuck in ordinance a versus ordinance b or law or reform a versus reform b but to push us on what are the intellectual frameworks that we need to bring to the table as we rethink the debate on labor capital relationships in india two important sources of labor laws or any law in a country that would be the constitution of a country uh, which has been uh, which would have been uh, and which is in fact a well conceived and a very uh, very thoughtful document mm-hmm. uh, which provides at once the rights and the Uh, guideposts mm-hmm. for the decent society to evolve in fact the phrase decent society was coined by john kenneth galbraith um, and of course we have the decent work of the ilo i would uh, like these two to be connected i hope uh, this uh, podcast will go to uh, i mean some ilo official will uh, will be uh, full enough to listen to mine and then this these two need to be linked uh, decent society is one where uh, there are uh, uh, there are social protection floors and uh, which could be improved upon over a period of time so that they become pillars and then the decent work would be such that uh, they would serve uh, uh, a, a kind of a golden uh, balance so to say uh, the 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 uh, apparently uh, conflicting objectives of economic efficiency and uh, uh and uh, labor market equity so this is the first framework that i would suggest that uh, that in india uh, having gone through uh, the 70 years of social and economic progress uh, need to think of being a progressive society um, i mean um, though of course our population is a big uh, blinder but the kind of the society that uh, scandinavian and nordic countries have achieved 
in order to create a decent and a sustainable society so i would say that the constitution the international labor standards uh, uh, framework of the ILO and of course the uh, other paradigms like uh, decent work and formalizing informality and fair globalization on the one hand and the sustainable development goals that have been uh, increased by the United Nations uh, which has set the uh, time limit of 2030 but I mean that these temporal limits don't meet uh, much but what is important is the framework that, that the SDGs have uh, given to us so uh, to to combine together this constitution the uh, the, uh, the treaties of the un particularly the ilo and its philosophies and paradigms and the sdgs should provide us uh, the broad and not even broad uh, very uh, specific and connected interconnected framework within which we need to knit together not only labor laws uh, uh, but other laws as well we, we we seem to be forgetting that uh, labor for example migrant labor uh, falls in the realm of not only the ministry of labor and employment but also the other ministries uh, such as uh, the home ministry and others because in okay. the internal economy yeah. Yeah. that kind of a framework should lead us uh, forward and um, we need to move away from the adversarial uh, kind of labor capital uh, relations into one of uh, co-creation model right wherein, uh, wherein the all the stakeholders come together co-creation would mean not only the industry in uh, or the original equipment manufacturer let us say in a supply chain but the entire uh, configuration of industries uh, you know going up to the home based worker so you one covers both the organized sector and unorganized sector in a total totality mm -hmm. in order to uh, in order to have a, an encompassing uh, labor law regime regulation regime mm -hmm. which uh, will transcend the uh, one firm and also uh, cover the other firms which are in the, which are in the binding uh, framework uh, and have social dialogue or multi stakeholder dialogue or multi stakeholder initiative I mean, I'm coming to the process of lawmaking, which in India, I find them to be rather defective because in a bit, in a hurry, unholy hurry, I should say, uh, to, uh, to kind of achieve the so-called uh, uh, ease of doing business, which really does not, uh, is dependent on the labor law, uh, so-called labor law rigidities. Uh, ease of doing business would be better served by non-labor law uh, factors such as uh, uh, infrastructure, energy, uh, contract law enforcement, uh, uh, skilled uh, availability of skilled person power, uh, etc., so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But still, I would uh, I would I would appeal for uh, uh, pluralistic and democratic processes uh, that would uh, uh, have uh, that would have uh, 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 an encompassing uh, uh, multi-stakeholder dialogue. I'm going beyond the brief of the International Labour Organization, which recognizes tripartism and tripartite plus. But I would argue for a much broader coalition. Of course, if they have all tensions and others, yeah. I need to talk about the social democratic pluralistic yeah. processes yeah. that should be in, uh, that should be adopted in order to create as far as possible the floor and then to take it take the issue forward. And in that sense, 
the entire codification process to me is uh, a, a grand conception failure as well as a, 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 a Himalayan process failure. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you. I think you've exactly hit the nail on the head. We need to move towards a framework of co-creation where labor and capital move away from an adversarial relationship to one of uh, more than beyond cooperation to co-creation. And the process of doing this cannot be one of uh, uh, hurriedly thought through and pushed through ordinances, but yeah. one that is genuinely democratic, that is genuinely participatory, and that brings labor and capital into a dialogue and debate rather than always at two side ends of the table one with a relatively weaker bargaining position and the state mediating uh, between them thank you very very much professor Sundar this has been such a wonderful and all-important lesson in the history of India's labor regulations in uh, the understanding of the theoretical frameworks that have shaped our regulation but also more importantly shaped the evolution of our economic trajectory and that have brought us to the place where we are today. It's been an absolute privilege for us talking to you and learning from you. Thank you very, very much. Really appreciate the time you've taken for this conversation. Thank you for joining us. This is the Center for Policy Research's 11th episode on the impact of the unfolding coronavirus pandemic in India. Stay tuned for future episodes. To learn more about all our COVID-19 related analysis, follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India or visit our COVID-19 website at www.cprindia.org slash COVID-19.